This episode of Gospel Bound is brought to you by Crossway and the new ESV Bible app. The ESV Bible app is designed to help you engage with God's Word on a deeper level, offering elegant, intuitive features to personalize your study, including multiple audio recordings of the full ESV text, audio playlists, customizable background music, daily reading plans, and more. Download the ESV Bible app on your phone or tablet, or visit esv.org to get started. You're listening to Gospel Bound, a podcast from the Gospel Coalition for those searching for firm faith in an anxious age. I'm your host, Colin Hansen. A recent article in New York Magazine included this bombshell. Roughly 30% of American women under 25 identify as LGBT. For women over 60, that figure is less than 5%. Now, I can't find anyone who believes this number can really be that high. To acknowledge such a dramatic shift in such a short period of time would be nothing sort of a world-changing revolution. But we know about rapid-onset gender dysphoria among adolescents and teens, And we've seen the prevalence of social contagion in our Instagram age. So is such a revolution in human sexuality so unthinkable? This revolution may be sudden if it's actually happening, but it's no more dramatic than what we've seen unfold in the West in the last 60 years. Historian Carl Truman covers that ground in his new book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and the Road to Sexual Revolution, published by Crossway. But he locates the sexual revolution within a broader change in views of the self and identity. Truman joins me in this special extended episode of Gospel Bound to help church leaders understand what's happening. I've seen Carl say that apologetics used to be about explaining the church to the world but now it's more about explaining the world to the church. And that's what he does in The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, which is my pick for the most important book published in 2020. So I'm eager to learn more about this road to revolution and also ask some of your listener questions on this subject. So Carl, thank you for joining me on this episode of Gospel Bound. Great to be here, Colin. Thanks for having me on. Well, Carl, what led you to embark on this journey of research and writing? Your interests range very widely, about as widely as as any historians I know. I don't think I would have assumed a decade ago from your work on church history that you'd go in this direction. No, I would not have assumed that either. It's, It's something of a break. In terms of content, at least, with what I've typically done in the past, which has been a focus very much on 16th and 17th century Protestant thought, uh, the, the immediate context for the book was a converse, or three-way conversation I had uh, five or six years ago with Rod Dreher from the American Conservative and Justin Taylor from Crossway. and They wanted somebody to do an introduction to the work of Philip Reef, uh, and I looked at Reef, thought he was interesting and thought I'd, I'd take up the challenge. So I started to work on that. And it soon became clear that a more interesting book would be, and a more useful book would be, not simply an introduction to Reef, but a, a book that took some of his ideas and used them to uh, decode or understand what was happening in our culture. 
At the same time, I was I was at that point in time a pastor as well, and, and pastors are faced with concerns and questions that come from their congregations, many of which, uh, in my experience, tended to focus on issues relating to the sexual revolution. Remember, one particular question I was asked by a congregant was whether uh, he could use the, the requested pronouns at work to refer to a, a transgender person. Was that something that a Christian should refuse to do, or was it something that a Christian should comply with? And I was also aware that a lot of Christians were uh, wrong-footed or thrown off balance by the apparent speed at which the sexual mores of society are changing. 2015 was uh, the Supreme Court judgment on gay marriage. It, it seems like a lifetime ago now. Uh, no sooner had uh, gay marriage be, been recognised uh, at law by the Supreme Court than we seem to have an avalanche of, of transgender issues impacting us. And so I was interested in, in trying to explore why this is happening so fast. And as you pointed out in your introduction, what I discovered as I was working on this book was that actually it appears to be happening fast, but the, the fundamental transformations that make this possible are very deep-seated and long-standing. So the book had a, a kind of pastoral origin as well. Um, and Humanly speaking, I was at a point in my career when it, you know, I've made whatever contribution I'm going to make in the 16th, 17th century, <laughs> I've made it. I can keep making the same contribution, but I thought it'd be more interesting to spend my, my closing decades doing something different. Was it, was it a difficult transition? I mean, did you have to come up to speed on, on authors like Philip Reef, or were you pretty well conversant already and you just needed to organize your thoughts? I had to do a lot of reading, and I, I mean, I'm grateful to you because around about the same time, I think it was you that asked me to contribute yeah. to a book on Charles Taylor. I'd read Taylor, but yeah. that made me go back and spend a lot more time studying Taylor, and he features in the book too. So I, I wasn't building from scratch, but I was certainly having to expand the canon of books that I read, and I was, I was very fortunate and privileged to be granted a, a one-year a fellowship at Princeton University by by the great Robbie George, uh, which gave me the time to to devote to the the catch up work I'd got to do. Yeah, I, I'm I'm glad you dropped uh, that book, uh, Our Secular Age: Ten Years of Reading and Applying Charles Taylor, which came out in 2017 on the 10 year anniversary of his landmark book, A Secular Age. And you're exactly right. I and mean, one of the reasons I love your book, The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, is it does in a similar way, what Charles Taylor did of helping people to understand not merely what's in front of us, but what's behind what's in front of us, which is, I think, vital for us to be able to understand the challenges and to be able to respond to them effectively and faithfully. Uh, I was going to ask, for whom did you write the book? That's one of the things I think a lot of people are going to, are going to ask because it's an incredibly compelling read. Uh, I moved quickly through it. I was just fascinated. I kept looking, Carl, of like, there's going to be some point in this book where I just, I fall off. At some point, I'm going to lose the trail. Uh, at some point, I'm going to I'm going to start to disagree. And it, it never happened. I was really surprised. It isn't about you. It's just about the complexity of this subject. Mm -hmm. But I do, because of some of the work you just talked about there that you and I have done together in the past, I'm fairly conversant with a lot of the ideas in here, but most pastors are not, which is why I think it's such a valuable resource. So who do you have in mind as the as the int intended audience? Are you thinking mainly pastors or, or lay leaders in sight here? Or are we just talking academics? 
Who are you thinking? I didn't have any particular constituency in mind. I, I wanted to write, I suppose if I was to, to generalize, I'd say I wanted to write for the kind of people that read the First Things website, yeah, or First good. Things magazine, or Touchstone, uh, and are not scholars, but are thoughtful and informed people who want to have a thoughtful and informed approach to the subject. I was very careful in the way I wrote it. It's not really until the last chapter that I that I tip my hand as a Christian, if you like. I mean, one level, it's very clear from the forward, etc. I'm writing as a Christian. But I wanted to write in a way that was explanatory rather than evaluative a lot of the time, because I wanted people to not to get carried away by, by rhetoric, uh, but to follow the line of argumentation. Uh, one of the men in my own denomination said to me, he said, it's very interesting that when I read your stuff at first things, I always feel it's the preacher speaking because bang, mm. you're coming in and, and hitting from a particular. He said, in this book, you didn't really preach until the last chapter. You, you were very dispassionate. And that was a self-conscious move on my part because I also hope that, it may be a vain hope, but I hope that non-Christians, religious conservatives in general, I even hope that, that people in the LGBTQ movement will be able to read this book. And, and even if they don't agree with, with my conclusions at the end, at least say, well, he, he presented the history fairly. He understands what's going on and he's not caricatured our position, even as he has, has ultimately offered some critique of it. I think you succeed in that. And that's an important clarification for people who have read your previous work and especially who enjoy your first things columns or what you've writ written at the Gospel Coalition, because you, you know how to pack a rhetorical punch. Um, I've been uh, the recipient on the uh, receipt. I've been the, re yeah, the receiving I have to ask for your forgiveness on that. Of more than a few of your punches. So, <laughs> we get older and wiser. <laughs> <laughs> so, I, so I understand that. But, but my point is, you're right that, that is not, that's not the book that you wrote here. Yeah. But it doesn't mean it's poorly written. It just means you're right. There's a more dispassionate tone when it comes there, which is part of what allowed me to, to move through it so quickly. And, and I, I do think it can reach those audiences. And I might encourage listeners and viewers following with, with us here to, to find somebody within your community, especially if you're in an academic community with whom you might read the book and then you might talk it through. I know that Christians are not necessarily equipped to understand these changes, but I'm not sure most other people who are completely supportive of what's happened in the sexual revolution understand its own evolution. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think it is beneficial for that group as well. Now, I, I think I detected, Carl, an homage to, uh, to Charles Taylor in the beginning. Taylor famously starts a secular age by saying, 500 years ago, you, you took for granted that God existed. This is the story of how that came to be fraught and how that, you know, we've, we've lost touch with that narrative. And you write not, not long ago, maybe 30 years ago, that this statement, I am a woman trapped in a man's body, would have been incomprehensible. And now I might say it's incontestable. Yeah. How do you even begin to explain such a transformation. I mean, that's what the book is for, but I'm yeah. just trying to ask, how do you even begin to explain that transformation? Well, that was, I mean, one of the biggest headaches in the book was actually getting the structure right. Uh, I was very grateful that Grove City College provided me with uh, a research assistant, a couple of research assistants whose job was essentially to read what I wrote and tell me if it made sense to them <laughs> and, and to try to find some coherence. I think the, the way I ultimately solved that problem was to think, okay, what... What does society have to assume is true in order for this statement to make sense? Mm 
And one of the big assumptions, of course, is society assumes that that one's inner feelings, within some limits, but generally one's inner feelings, are, are the real foundational, definitive point of who you actually are. So big part of the narrative is exploring how do we get to a point where uh, my body has less authority than my emotions or my sentiments. Uh, so, so that was the sort of the key for me. What do I need? What does society need to think is intuitively true? Uh, another aspect of that would be society has to have a notion of freedom where freedom is, is Colin Hansen being free to be whoever he thinks he is and Truman not to get in his way and interfere with that. So that's another aspect of the story. The sort of the rise of expressive individualism, right. as Taylor would characterize it, is, is what's being traced out there. And of course, in doing that, I also came to the, the, the rather disturbing, perhaps, conclusion that you know, we're all involved in this. It's not a question of saying, well, transgender people, they buy into this philosophy and, uh, and that's where you end up. It became to me rather disturbing to think, wow. We all kind of buy into this philosophy. We all think of ourselves as determined by our choices. We all allow our inner feelings to drive our sense of identity. So we're all complicit. And that, I think, is actually helpful for Christians because the tendency in all of us, and I know especially in myself, is often to, to say, I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men. As we sort of start to put together that narrative and realize our complicity, I think it chastens and humbles us in the way we, we interact with those with whom we might disagree on this point. I think, Carl, if I could identify the biggest shift in my understanding of, of cultural analysis, it came in realizing the point you just made right there, that it's not about how we're just trying to understand the, the world so that we can engage and defeat the world from our position of, of privilege and power and, and uh, principle, you know, principled stands. It's more about uh, we are being compromised ourselves in ways that we seem to take for granted. So it's less of the culture war approach of issues based and more about broader, like I said earlier, cultural analysis there to understand those changes. And I think that's why coming off an election, coming off so much contentiousness over political issues and things like that, it would be wise for people to invest in picking up this book. I, I, an example I, I give is years ago, James Davison Hunter and I were meeting in Virginia at the University of Virginia, and I was asking him about politics. And he dismissed me uh, as if my questions were completely irrelevant. And I was a little miffed. Why, why is that the case? And he said, well, you're, you're talking to me about the weather. I'm thinking about climate. Mm. And I thought, wow, it's, it's, it's affected a whole shift for me. And that's what you're doing here. You're, you're doing climatology for yeah, us. I, I, and I think that's important. And you know, your reference to culture war there is very significant. One thing that's become very clear to me, teaching undergraduates, I've gone back to teaching undergraduates at Grove City Colleges, the language of culture war doesn't resonate with most of them. Uh, and so the, the task of, of those of us who want to defend the faith and articulate what we consider to be the appropriate model of human flourishing, worshipping God, enjoying God, looking forward to being with him forever, we have to adopt a different strategy. And I think that you know, that emphasis upon the climate, as James Davison Hunt puts it, naturally 
draws you away from the rather stark and aggressive battle lines of, of, the, of the culture. The culture, in some sense, I think is over at this point. Uh, the culture is what it is, and Christians now have to learn to be persuasive within that overall climate. We need to also learn to be persuasive with our own children. Yeah. I, I think one of the things I'm most concerned about is I continue to hear report after report after report of strong Christian church leaders for whom when talking with their children, a biblical sexual ethic is incomprehensible yeah, to yeah. them, even if they've been formed in the church. What do you see teaching undergrads in a Christian college environment? I, th I think that's much the same. I would certainly, uh, I mean, the work of my colleague, David Ayres. David's done a lot of work on attitudes among religious conservatives uh, towards sexuality. And this is an area where really there is a, a massive generational shift taking place. When I was a pastor, I, I remember another pastor saying to me, never assume that anybody under the age of 30 necessarily agrees with your view of sexuality. I think for the longest time, the Christian sexual ethic was also the, the general cultural sexual ethic. And that made us very lazy about thinking about how to articulate these things because we thought they were self-evident uh, and obvious. My experience of teaching undergraduates is at a place like Grover, a lot of the students are, uh, come from good Christian homes and they're good Christian kids. Uh, they want to be faithful uh, and they know what the Bible says, but they don't know why the Bible says it. Uh, and and we've, we, we need to be persuasive by providing them context, by allowing them to understand why they might struggle with what the Bible says, uh, by pointing them to the, the God doesn't command these things simply as an arbitrary whim. They connect to a holistic view of what life is. So I think Protestants really need to play catch up on, on that kind of game, uh, deepening our sexual ethic in a way that we've not had to do for, for many, many generations, precisely because the culture has essentially been in the same place that we have. And that's no longer the case. How is it that a biblical sexual ethic that has played such a cornerstone role in the development of Western culture. I don't know if you've, you're familiar with Joseph um, Henrik's book, The Weirdest People in the World, um, just came out. I just got it the other week. I've oh, not had a chance to read all it. Right, so well, it's I'm, it's I'm, too big a tome for term time. <laughs> <laughs> when, people, when people read uh, Carl's book, then they can turn to that one. But he's arguing that more or less the whole concept of Western identity, Western educated, industrial, you know, rich and democratic yeah. is because of the church's imposition of a biblical sexual ethic, which broke up, broke up the clan structure um, and, and created the nuclear family, which then allowed free associations and things like that. But how did we go from that situation to all of a sudden it being unthinkable and then it becomes just under this umbrella term of oppression? And it's like the old um, uh, British uh, skit with Hugh Laurie. You look around at each other and you're like, are we the baddies? Like, how, how, did, how did we become yes. the baddies yeah, here? Yeah. Well, in some ways, that's the story of, of my book. Uh, yeah. that's, it takes me 400 pages to get that. <laughs> uh, I think, uh, I mean, there are many aspects to that story. One of them is, I think, Freud's notion that we're defined by our sexual desires 
whether that's true or not doesn't really matter. I always say to the students, just because an idea is false doesn't mean that it doesn't come to grip the imagination and drive human motivation. And I think his idea that we're defined by our sexual desires is very appealing uh, and, and contains a certain amount of truth. And that's come to grip the imagination. Uh, and of course, it morphs into a political form because as soon as you make that move that we are our sexual desires, then political liberation gets closely connected to sexual liberation because sexual codes become oppressive means of preventing me from being who I really am. So that's one side of it. I think another side is technological. Uh, for the longest time, traditional uh, Christian sexual codes did reinforce the kind of technological, industrial, capitalist kind of society that, that the West had become, where disciplined work habits and personal responsibility in one's private life were closely connected. The guy can't get round, go around getting lots and lots of girls pregnant because that will cause all manner of social problems. Mm. The advent of the pill, the advent of cheap contraception, the advent of drugs that help combat sexually transmitted disease. All of these things essentially sort of separate the, what we might call the public disciplines from the private disciplines, that we can have those public disciplines now of hard work and we can still play as we wish in private because the two don't really kind of collide in a way that they would have done a hundred years ago. So there are a lot of aspects to that story. On the one hand, there's the intellectual aspect that slowly trickles down. And secondly, there's the, the technological aspect that makes these ideas plausible to act upon in a way that they might not have been in times past. If I remember correctly from the book, you don't devote as much attention to the technological aspects of these things, right? You focus more on the philosophical developments, yeah. Yeah, which, is, which is noteworthy because they, we, we know in a historical account, they interplay, they yeah. feed off each other. And part of that's the whole challenge of the analyst is to decide how they do. And one thing you did in our secular age that I thought was so significant is, uh, and, I, and I've seen it from others since then, but you talk about the role of um, the automobile in church discipline. You know, why does church discipline disappear? Because at the point where you can simply drive to a different congregation, even in your same denomination, what power do you have of locking people out of the fellowship and, and treating them as unbelievers? But why didn't you, why didn't you um, give more attention to the technological developments in this particular book? That's a good question. On the one hand, I did not want to write something of the length of a secular age. <laughs> 400 yeah, pages. pages. Enough, yeah, yes. 800 pages, you're um, right. <laughs> I, I, I do. Uh, it was certainly not because I don't think that aspect of the story is important. And I mean, I say right at the very beginning, this is not an exhaustive account of how these changes have come to dominate society. Uh, I do allude to technology on a couple of occasions. Right. Certainly in the, in the section on pornography. Yeah. Uh, I think one cannot separate. Pornography shapes the way people think about other people, about the way they think about sexual morality. And the triumph of pornography in contemporary society cannot be separated from its technological fall. Right, yeah. you know, in times past, there were obvious social restraints that prevented people from indulging this. Now, anybody can indulge it in what at least they imagine is private. It may practically be a little more complicated than that. But other than that, the, the technological story is, is, you know, it's another story in itself. A little bit like I think the, there's another aspect of the story I don't really address, and that's the institutional aspect. 
Uh, one of the things I think that facilitates the rise of, of the sort of the plastic notion of the self, where we can invent ourselves, is the liquidity of institutions, that we now live in a world where the typical solid anchors that would have allowed us to, we could grab hold of to give ourselves firm identity, have dissolved. And I think that too has a huge impact on how we think about ourselves. No longer do we get born, married, and die in the same location. Uh, we are very fluid in terms of our institutional relations now. And that's another part of the story that, that really I didn't have a, a chance to address. Oh, you mentioned Freud earlier. I'm wondering, did you identify any particular turning point or, or maybe most important figure? Seems, if I had to guess, would have been Rousseau. Rousseau is in some sense the founder of the feast. I was teaching my historical methods class yesterday and uh, I, I used my book as an example on the grounds that you always have to choose your starting point and there's always something behind the starting point. I could have started with Descartes, for example. Sure. But I think Rousseau is significant because he is the man who uh, doesn't just internalize the self in a way that, say, a Descartes does, but who emphasizes the importance and priority of feelings that both reflect my identity, also give him a certain view of society as corrupting, uh, and also uh, point towards a particular ethical understanding where ethics becomes a matter of, of empathy. And all of those things, the internalization of the self, the priority on my feelings as determining who I am, and empathy as the foundational ethical category, all of those become very important uh, in, in the modern moment particularly vis-a-vis -vis the sexual revolution. So I would say yeah, Rousseau is the kind of founder of the feast. Obviously, his ideas are developed and transformed in subsequent centuries, but he's the man who really sets the ball rolling. can cover a lot of ground in discussing uh, the development of Western thought and history in a tale of two Genevans um, between Calvin and uh, Rousseau. One thing that comes up often at a level of sheer confusion, and I wonder if it's mere political convenience or what, but how are we supposed to reconcile the comments about being born this way with an with, as an unchangeable sexual orientation, a fixed sexual orientation with fluid gender identity? Yeah, well, I think you're, you're spot on there when you say, well, I don't think we can reconcile. I think this debate proceeds on the basis of ever-changing rhetoric and ever-changing goalposts. And, and I would say those things, uh, two things are not compatible. Uh, they are held up as truths at points where it is convenient for them to be held up as truths. We saw this in recent weeks with the Capitol Hill hearings relative to Amy Coney Barrett, where she was caught in this gotcha moment. Mm -hmm. I think she used... Um, was it sexual, sexual preference. Sexual preference. Sexual preference was the term she used. And, right. and she was sort of slapped for using a pejorative, which actually wasn't a pejorative at the time. Right. It became a pejorative later that day, I think. When Mary well, the dictionary literally changed yeah. after the hearing online, which yeah. talks about the institutions that you were yeah. referring to earlier. Yeah, and that's... And that's a great example of how in this fluid world, we're, we're, it's a kind of Nietzschean assertion of the will, if you like. We're up against goalposts that are ever-changing and will always be set in such a way that we can't score the goal, I think, as conservative Christians on this one. And it's not just us. Uh, of course, it's, um, I mean, it's J.K. Rowling. It's anybody who is either coming from a feminist perspective or a feminist and lesbian perspective, yeah. as in the case of Martina Navratilova, 
a lo- taken a lot of heat for not understanding how these things, a, a concept of femininity, which is central to both feminism as well as lesbianism, is supposed to coincide with what is seemingly a purely stereotyped femininity that comes with transgenderism, which also has no biological referent and can change at any given moment and requires every other definition of, of what it means to be female to change in its wake. It's clear that these two, they can coexist in a pure kind of rhetorical cudgel. I mean, that, that, that's probably how it works, but is there a sense in which one of the two does need to win uh, is is the liquidity of transgenderism ultimately going to triumph? Because, I mean, that's what I thought after Obergefell was the day after Obergefell, now it's on to transgenderism. Yeah, yeah. I guess what I'm wondering, Carl, is that, is there anything beyond transgenderism? I, I, I'm not sure there <laughs> is, just because transgenderism requires the complete and final divorce between biology or any fixed identity. Yeah, I mean, you're pointing there to the sort of the, the idea of queer theory, essentially, yes. where all categories are destabilized. Right. And I think, uh, you know, while well, well, one always hesitates to say there's nothing beyond transgenderism, I know. I know. Um, you know, there's, there's nothing in some ways beyond queer theory, because queer theory is, is a permanent revolution of categories. I use the, what to me was a, a truly tragic anecdote in the book, which I drew from the, the Boston Women's uh, Health Book Collective, uh, our bodies ourselves it's a sort of standard feminist text i drew an anecdote from there where there's a woman she's a lesbian she's been living with uh, another woman for 10 years and the woman she's living with uh, transitions to becoming a man mm-hmm. and and suddenly her friends are telling her the original woman that, that she's now straight because she's living with a man and she's in she's she's put in this dilemma. I mean, does she assert her own identity as a lesbian, in which case she denies the identity of her partner, or does she uh, deny her own identity as a lesbian in order to assert her, her partner? She, she, it seems a lose-lose. And the end of the anecdote that the, the authors of the, the editors of the book think is great is that she says, well, I just became happy with my queer identity. Yeah. To me, that's sort of tragic that here we have the story of a woman who, she doesn't know who she is anymore. Right. Uh, and I, I do think that the, the liquidity of, of transgenderism is inimical to, to traditional, if we can use that term, LGB concerns and ways of thinking of the world. And uh, certainly at a theoretical level, will win the way things are going. Whether practically it can do so is another question. Right. And, uh, and I am un, uh, uncharacteristically optimistic that transgenderism may not be around in 150 years' time, not as a mainstream thing anyway. Well, it's, it's fighting pure biological reality. Yeah. I reality mean, mugs you at some point. Right. So you're, you're fighting against biological reality where, however you arrive at that whether it's evolutionary or whether it's from a Christian creation perspective, you're running against reality. And the idea that the mind utterly controls the body and makes the body irrelevant is not a livable philosophy. No. Uh, I mean, in my, my alternative existence at Grove City College, I'm the, the advisor to the women's rugby team. <laughs> <laughs> for all things, I'm one of the few people within a 50-mile radius who's ever played rugby, I suppose. Well, <laughs> I, I was chatting with one of the girls the, the other week, and she'd been training with the men's team. And she said to me, ah, oh, Truman, <clears throat> they were killing me. 
Yeah. She said, they just hit so hard. And I said, so you need to be careful. You don't want to train with them because you're going to get seriously injured <clears throat> because guys are on average bigger, stronger, faster, more yeah. powerful than you. She could self-identify as a male rugby player all she wants. <clears throat> She's going to be a quadriplegic if she goes onto a rugby field and, uh, and expects to compete. So I think you're absolutely right. Biology is clearly significant. And it's which weird is, that we live in an age where to say that is a right. hate crime. Which is, which is why <clears throat> it doesn't typically run that direction. It runs in the only direction that it could, meaning the men self-identifying as women and then competing as women where they can dominate. Yeah. The biology still rules, and yet somehow we pretend as if that's not what's happening. And I, I mean, Australia seems to be constantly engulfed in rugby culture war controversies. But the most recent one that I observed from Australia concerned this prohibition on men competing uh, mm. with women as women. Because, again, just physically, it is unsafe for women in those environments if you care at all about women. Now, Carl, this is not the first time you've written about um, different Carl Marx. He seems to hang over... <laughs> everything in discourse today as a kind of specter who's haunting conservatives, but he's typically associated with class warfare, not the sexual revolution, at least in most of how yeah. I was taught him in my curriculum on European history. And uh, I think we were assigned communist manifesto like four times classes or something. So what role does he play in your, uh, in your narrative? He's, he's very significant for a number of reasons. One, he's part of a general 19th century move that, I won't say abolishes human nature, but certainly historicizes it and relativizes it. Uh, he's, a, on one level, a good student of Hegel, and that, that human nature can never be abstracted from its historical conditions and, and studied in isolation. So there's that uh, important role he plays. Secondly, he, he's certainly interested in what we might call the depth or the inner space that's been opened up in human existence. When you, when you read his writings on religion, for example, he's like Nietzsche in terms of the the persistence of religion is a mystery to him uh, and has to be explained in, in the psychological needs that it meets. Uh, mm. He's also inter interesting in that he, he kind of flips history on its head. He doesn't flip Hegel on his head. He flips history on its head and, and makes the today's losers tomorrow's winners. That the, the real key to history is looking at the marginalized. And I think that's something that has really gripped yeah. the imagination. And to the sexual minority, especially yes. then. Yeah. yeah, for him, it was the economic, economically marginalized, it was the proletariat. As we move into the 20th century, that shifts to becoming the marginalized on ethnic or sexual, etc. those sort of grounds. So he's significant uh, on that front. And he's also significant because he, he, he gets the movement of history wrong, and that's a problem for his followers. Why does the revolution happen in Russia, not in Germany? Russia is a peasant society, doesn't have a developed proletariat. Germany, highly industrialized, strong proletariat, just lost a war. If you can't have a successful yeah. revolution in Germany in 1919, you shouldn't be able to have a successful revolution anywhere. Mm -hmm. And that inspires some of his followers to start probing issues of psychology. And the key people in this, I think, are the so-called Frankfurt School and those like Wilhelm Reich who are loosely associated with them, who try to bring some of the insights of Freud in, into dialogue with Marx and essentially say that the key to, to generating a revolutionary psychology 
is to to smash the sexual codes of society because that's how the middle class con the working class, con the oppressed into supporting them. We need to to dismantle bourgeois sexual codes to liberate people. That becomes the spirit of 68 in Europe with the the student protests. And without being self-consciously Marxist, permeates the kind of way we think about political liberation today. One more question, uh, Carl, before we turn to some of the listener questions and ones that have been submitted to us that we've been able to go through. Every author learns as he or she writes a book. Anything in particular surprise you during that research? Uh, Quite a a few things, uh, actually. Uh, I was surprised at how how significant the romantics were in the story. Mm. I'm a great lover of romance. Well, I think it's great fun writing a chapter on the Getting paid to write a chapter <laughs> on my favorite poets was fantastic. <laughs> but realizing that, that the stuff that I like musically and, uh, and, and artistically and poetically is, is not incidental to the story. That was uh, an interesting uh, mm. uh, discovery. I think the other thing was towards the end, when I come to, to the, the part where I look at the three triumphs, realizing Yes, all of this is interconnected. Uh, the forms of art we have, the way we think about oppression, the way we think about sexual morality, the way the Supreme Court reasons in some of its key judgments. Uh, mm. All of these things are interconnected. It's not just that we have this thin strand of a slow but steady dismantling of sexual morality over the years. Everything is being transformed by this different way of imagining the self. So that was... Very striking to me. I think that I went in thinking this is a long-standing, deep-seated, wide-ranging problem. I had no idea of just how comprehensive the problem was. Which sometimes makes it more difficult to identify because it's, you know, famous David Foster Wallace comment. It's like telling a fish about water. Yeah, yeah. I mean, what's water? It's like trying to explain expressive individualism to somebody. Like, no, that's just life. Yeah. No, it's it's a particular thing, and it, and it's uh, peculiar to the West at this point. You know, for the last what however period of time, and it uh, is uh, inimical to Christianity. Yeah, <laughs> it, it doesn't fit well. Yeah, and the problem is that as Christians, we're implicated. I, exactly. Uh, as I was writing, I think, how do we get out of this? And it's actually very difficult to get out. You know, if you're a goldfish, it's difficult to get out of the goldfish bowl and survive. Right. I. I'm struck by um, reading uh, Charles Taylor's Ethics of Authenticity years ago, a short book, fairly readable by Taylor's standards. And in the end, after he's done a wonderful job of of just dismantling this age of authenticity, in the end, his big conclusion is, but that's the language we've got. Yeah. So you're not going to make any progress unless you speak the way people understand. Yeah. Yeah. I thought, wow, I mean, there's not really an agenda to dismantle this there's an agenda to say well perhaps you can nudge it in a different direction Um, but it's so core to how we conceive of the self and how we how we understand what a good life or life well lived uh, looks like both individually and then together as a community and and again that's what you do so well in in this book so we're going to turn to some listener questions now a little bit more pastoral approach on some of these things uh you can tell from our listeners, people are just caught up in trying to manage this stuff um, day to day. So one of our listeners wrote and said, 
Now, how do I speak the truth in love to my friends who disagree with me when it comes to God-given sexuality? Because they're saying that sexuality is a basic human right, and they see my biblical beliefs as hateful or intolerant. Yes, and I think that that is the question. I mean, there are variations of that question, but I think that is the one that most of us feel most pressing. And, and I feel it talking to some of the kids at Grove City College that I love all my, I, you know, I love all my students and I, I want them to do well, but I know there are some there who find my views hard. Um, I, I think there's no... The, the answer is not a, a simply epistemological one. There's no magic bullet. I mean, it would be tried, to, tried but true to say the thing that makes unbelievers unbelievers is, is they don't accept biblical authority. So simply quoting the Bible at them is, isn't going to solve the problem. But I also think it's hard to argue from natural law or something like that. Arguments that I find quite compelling mm-hmm. will not work with those who, who are deeply embedded in the kind of radical, expressive individuals in the world around. Emotivism. Emotivism, emotivism. yeah. Uh, the best I can do, uh, and, and I'm no expert in this as well, I'm, I'm in the same boat as, as the person asking that question, wrestling with how to go about this. One, I think a one-size-fits-all answer probably doesn't work because every human relationship has its unique aspects. Two, though, I do think a big part of the solution, and it, it's, I sort of point towards this at the end of the book, it's interesting that the person said friends and mm-hmm. where there's a friend, there's hope yeah. because there's always hope that at minimum, this person might ultimately turn around and say, well, I think your views are crazy, but the way you relate to me and the way you, and the way I see you relate to other people and the friendship you have indicates that it's, it's not hatred that's driving you. It's confusion. So I, I think the, the key is the context in which these discussions take place, that it's important that they, they occur in the context of community and friendship. I, I do think Rosaria Butterfield uh, is, is a classic example uh, of you know, the example, not a example, the example. Her conversion is rooted in the friendship she has with this pastor. And they built a real true friendship before they ever got into any of the nitty gritty of, of the difficult stuff that divided them. And I think friendships, one cannot underestimate the power and importance of friendships in this context. So no magic bullet there, but I would say continue to be a friend, continue to be a friend and your arguments may gain plausibility simply because you're a caring, loving friend to that person. Much of the first uh, 10 years of my career, Carl, was watching, you know, think about the 2004 presidential election, the so-called values voters, all these bans on gay marriage. Many of my, just those years were watching uh, the West simply be overtaken with uh, gay marriage and transgenderism and things like that. Things that were impossible to imagine in 2000 were simply taken for granted in 2010 or 2015. The only time I began to see Christians find their footing is when Christians who are celibate or in biblical marriages began to feel comfortable speaking out about their experiences and their willingness to stand firm in the faith and with the biblical truth. And Rosaria is at the head of that. And we've seen others, whether it be Sam Alberry or Vaughn Roberts or others who have followed uh, in their wake, but um, we were we were simply caught off guard, caught flat-footed, and just sliding down that hill until finally, I was like, okay. And clearly, people who had struggled in that way inside our churches did not feel comfortable talking about that yeah, yeah. publicly. 
And so that was the big hurdle. But once that hurdle was jumped, it seemed as though, okay, now we've got a fighting chance here to be able to help people to understand personally and relationally what we mean about this unchanging biblical truth. Now, the second question, Carl, I think I'd probably know the answer to it. And I think it's going to fit well within the narrative you, you explain in your book. But a listener asks, why does secularism frame LGBTQ rights as civil rights, but not life in the womb? Well, I think it comes down to the, a couple of things there. First of all, the, the notion of personhood is, is important, and, and personhood is increasingly, I think, understood in an expressive individualist climate as a kind of independent self-consciousness. Uh, and uh, a denial of, of dependency. One of the, just as an aside, I would say, this, you know, Rousseau's philosophy is built on this idea that man is born free and everywhere is in chains. Right. If ever there's a self-evidently wrong statement, it's that. Man <laughs> is born utterly dependent for an unusual period of time upon his parents. But the myth, the image of the self that grabs hold of us is, is an expressive individual one that prioritizes individual rights rather than dependent duties and responsibilities. And that creates, I think, a natural adversarial uh, state between the individual and anything else. So the way that pregnancy is conceptualized in our society is kind of adversarial, that the, 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 the embryo in the womb is an invader, a parasite. It is jockeying for the rights of the mother, and the mother is a more mature and independent self-consciousness is always going to win. The LGBTQ stuff operates with a sort of similar frame in that you're choosing your own identity. You're, you're, you're setting forth your identity, and you're requiring that to be recognized by others. So I think both of them operate the same kind of model of, of self-conscious, free personhood. But in the one case, the embryo lacks self-consciousness, lacks personhood, and stands in an adversarial relationship to the one who does. Yeah, I would add a little bit informed by Ross Douthat and Rod Dreher's writing in particular that the rest of the sexual revolution depends technologically on abortion. It yes. becomes the backstop that allows the free expression of sexual activity um, because it eliminates the you know, the one consequence or one of the, one of the, one of the chief consequences, I should yeah. say of, of sex. It takes sex out of any kind of story and makes it a joyful moment with no significance beyond that. Right. This, this question is, um, it's not directly addressed in your book, but I think it, it fits, fits broadly within the same understanding. Uh, a listener asks, how do we determine biblical gender roles versus secular or traditional gender roles? <laughs> An easy one. I'm going to give you 30 seconds. No, go. Yeah, well, I mean, I am both a, a radical misogynist and a radical feminist, depending on which Twitter feed you read. I, I think it's, uh, I mean, there's, there's some basics there. Women can conceive and have children. Yeah, we can start with the sort of the real biological basics. I think beyond that, there, there is a lot of, of flexibility. Uh, I mean, anybody, I mean, you've done this, Colin, anybody who's traveled to different countries will know that the relationship of men and women is constructed differently in Britain to South Korea, to North America, uh, to China. Um, we have to allow, I think, well, we've got to be careful that we don't reify our own cultural preferences. 
Uh, on the other hand, I think we, we do need to acknowledge that there are key biological differences. We talked about some of them on this program. Women are, by and large, physically weaker. That doesn't mean that every woman is physically weaker than every man, but by and large, that is the case. Uh, women can conceive and have children. Women can breastfeed. There are clear roles that women have that, that, that men cannot have. So I, I, I simply think on this we need to be sensitive to our cultural predispositions without dissolving the relationship between uh, the difference between men and women in its entirety. It seems that we're, I, I've noticed, Carl, in, in publishing last uh, 10 years in particular, that writing anything within an internet context on gender roles is virtually impossible um, because people bring so many different fraught expectations and anger and experiences and fear to the conversation. And not, not to mention a global perspective that it's very hard to write on this topic and have somebody speak in a way that transcends some of those differences. Now the Bible says enough because that's how God has set it up to be, but it doesn't also say as much sometimes as we would want it to say on these things. And so it seems to me that we're stuck with one group pushing for no, in, in an era that what we're talking about here, you need to reassert the difference, the complementarity of the genders. Yeah. And then another group saying, but yeah, but we're dealing with a leg, a long-term legacy of cultural appropriation um, and stereotyping there that doesn't make sense either historically or internationally. So it seems like both perspectives are valid, but we can't figure out how to make them both work together. It's that whole middle ground that we can't, and I don't mean middle ground is in a little bit of that. I just mean, it's like we're back to back and we can't figure out how to go face to face and to move forward together. Yeah. And I think at a, t a particular time like this, when uh, culture war, I think is coming to an end, but it's certainly still right. being fought fairly vigorously. There could be a temptation for Christians to, to react against the extremes. It seems to me that it's been interesting what's happened on some complementarian side of things, which have gone in a more radically complementarian direction. I can understand that as a reaction to transgenderism. Uh, there's a danger, I think, that we can overreact to things. The key is to, to try to hold, I wouldn't say the biblical middle ground, but try to hold the biblical ground, not go beyond that which uh, the Bible, Bible states, but not shortchange the Bible either. Here's a question from a listener, Carl, which is, I think, good for a historian. And I had the experience earlier this year of reading through uh, Ron Chernow's uh, Hamilton. And one thing I loved about it is how terrible it showed the founding fathers to be as human beings. I mean, except for Washington, he's kind of comes across as adult. But I mean, other than that, he sounds like a great guy. That's the kind of thing that oddly enough encourages me. I I'm encouraged to know that people are people. Yeah, yeah. Whether their names are capitalized as founding fathers or whatnot. I mean, I should have known that biblically um, because that's every hero being torn down except for Jesus. But it's still helpful for me as a historian. And maybe that's the perspective that you could bring to this listener's question. This person asks, it seems as though we've crossed the line from differences that lead to disagreement to differences that lead to deconstruction or cancel culture. Is this just a misunderstanding of the past? Or are we really more divisive now? That's an interesting question. Um, I think that, that part of the problem is we seem to have lost sight of the moral complexity of human agency somewhere down the line. It, it, 
It's odd to me, for example, the debates that take place around, say, George, you know, George Whitfield and slavery or Jonathan Edwards and slavery. It, I, I've always taken the opinion that anybody I studied in history was a, was a mix of the good and the bad. Right. And, right. and the key is, you know, I, I certainly don't want to follow Whitfield and slavery any more than I want to follow him on how he treated his wife. You know, there, there are other problems with Whitfield. On the other hand, right. I don't want to throw out some of the good things that these guys did just because they were done by, I think you used the word, Dolts. They were done by dolts. We're all doltish to some to <laughs> some extent. And again, I think in, in the kind of polarized culture we're in at the moment where we're craving identity, the usual identity markers, family, religion, nation are kind of crumbling. Uh, one of the easy ways to grab identity is to, to find a tribe that we can belong to and demonize all other tribes. And the problem with that is it doesn't provide you with a very good lens for, say, parsing the moral complexity of human action. And one of my really big concerns uh, today is that Christians are falling into that. And it's, you commented earlier on about you'd been on the end of a few slaps from me over the years. <laughs> I, I have consciously changed my style. Over, over the last six, seven years, because I, I don't want to be part of that kind of culture. I think it behooves us all to try to model approaches to issues that reflect that moral complexity and avoid that. I thank you, Lord, that I'm not like other men, this guy over here. Well, interestingly, Carl, um, when I was working on our secular age, early 2017, I kept asking people, who do I need to include in this book? And I'm really happy with the lineup that we ended up with, with Michael Horton and Brett McCracken and Alan Noble and Mike Cosper and a whole, uh, Jen Michelle, a great lineup of people. The one name that kept coming up other than Charles Taylor and Jamie Smith was Carl Truman, which was interesting because I kept, I was like, I, I think it was Justin who, who said, well, I think Carl's changing some of his emphasis in terms of the kinds of things that he's researching. And this will be a good fit while he's working at Princeton. And I thought, wow, I just didn't expect that. And then I thought, but I'm pretty sure Carl hates me. <laughs> I just kept thinking, I don't know if that's going to go well. And, um, and I thought, well, I'm going to give it a shot. I want to see what the Lord is going to do with this. And I'm so glad that I did. And I'm so glad you responded the way that you did. I can uh, give you the backstory on that. When okay, I, go ahead. Go when ahead. I got your email, I was surprised. I thought, I, I assumed Colin thought I hated him. <laughs> so I sent it to a friend and I said, what do you think? And, and the, this friend gave me good advice. He said, you, you should, when people are kind, accept their kindness. And I did. And I was very glad to do so. So well, as I say, we get older and we get wiser and hopefully we get kinder as well. Well, I, I, love, I love that, Carl, because I also had... Um, I was so encouraged by our exchange that I then proceeded to try that with somebody else who had been very um, uh, critical of me. It didn't work at all. It, in fact, backfired on me in a major, very public way. Yeah. But I still thought, you know, it's always worth taking a chance yeah. because like you said, uh, we, we do get wiser, hopefully, with age. And ultimately, God is honored. And in light of the challenges that we face, we need each other. Yeah. You mentioned, uh, you, you mentioned Robbie George, you've mentioned Rod Dreher. Uh, both of us have significant theological disagreements with both of them, uh, George being Catholic, uh, Dreher being uh, Orthodox. And yet, when it comes to a lot of these issues, which are they're about our churches, they're about our public witness, they're about our children, they're about our collective future as a society, we need their help. Yeah. 
uh, well, we need to be working together wherever, wherever possible on these it, things. It takes no courage to take on other Christians by and large. It doesn't. Uh, the courageous stands at the moment are being taken against those who are seeking to destroy the faith. And, and I became very convicted of that a few years ago. Kind of, no, it's, it's time to, to focus on helping Christians address the bigger, the real problems. Yeah, not the disputes between Presbyterians and Baptists, Presbyterians and Evangelicals or whatever. The real problems are the problems that the person in the pew, uh, the, the Christian teaching in the public school, the guy at a company who's being asked to use gender pronouns, those are the people who are taking really courageous stands. And those of us who have the luxury of operating in, in a Christian community, we should use our time to provide produce stuff that helps those people with those courageous stands that they have to take. In the most, in the most church going uh, city in America, Birmingham, Alabama, if you're a pastor or an elder, you will deal with the following issues. Um, in, in the town where I sit right now, the state of Alabama has just approved a new uh, gay charter school. Um, parents are commonly dealing with their children wanting to transition in uh, at elementary school ages or junior high ages within Christian homes. And if you do not celebrate uh, gay weddings or things like that within your workplace or engagements, you will be ostracized and perhaps even fired uh, from mm -hmm. your job. Yeah. That's, that's what's happening in Birmingham, Alabama, the most yeah. church going city in America. If you're a pastor, you're going to be dealing with those things. And that's, that's what your book helps to do. And that's why I'm so enthusiastic about it, Carl. Um, like I said, I think it's the most important book that's been published in 2020. And it's a good cap to the end of year one of Gospel Bound. So thank you for helping to celebrate that, Carl. And um, make, yeah, make sure everybody, everybody sees the book and they can pick up the book from Crossway. Crossway also did a beautiful job um, with the design, with the cover, with the feel of everything as, as they always do. And so Again, my guest on Gospel Bound, Carl Truman, author of The Rise and Triumph of the Modern Self, Cultural Amnesia, Expressive Individualism, and The Road to Sexual Revolution. Thank you, Carl. Thanks, Colin. Thanks for listening to this episode of Gospel Bound with Colin Hansen. Join us next time as we continue the search for firm faith in an anxious age. Visit tgc.org slash gospelbound to find transcripts and past episodes, subscribe to my newsletter, and suggest a guest or topic that will help you find hope in the gospel of Jesus Christ.